Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. But tonight we're here for Carol Muskie Dukes. Carol Muskie Dukes, the current poet laureate of California. She is the author of eight books of poetry, four novels, two essay collections, and the editor of two anthologies. <laughs> professor. You should, I know you should. <laughs> she is a professor of English at creative, in creative writing at the University of Southern California. Received many awards and honors, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and a National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship, among others. But tonight we are here celebrating her new anthology, Crossing State Lines in American Regna, and her new book of poetry, Twin Cities. Please welcome Carol Muskie Dukes. Thank you, Steve. Wow. I don't think I need this mic. Oh, we have a few more people here. Thank you all for coming. I was going to say, this is like reading to family, you know? It's like reading in a living room. It's so nice. But, um,. We've got just a couple more people here. This is such a nice space because the tree makes it seem like we're gathered in a little park area, sort of, the illusion of green. Um, I don't know that I need the mic. I have a big voice, but I'm going <laughs> to use it anyway. Oh, and I'm so happy Moose is here, I have to say. <laughs> what a good boy. Somebody he comes. Oh, that the Merwin, the Merwin reading, that was Moose. That was their bad form. Moose was totally fine. It was the <laughs> library's bad form, or the, whoever they were, the library police. Um, uh, I just forgot what I was going to say. Oh, I was going to say, Moose comes to class all the time, or often comes, used to come to class in our grad seminar, but I hope he'll come again. You're going to come back, right? That's the one that... We're doing now. I'm ready to, Diana knows what I'm about to hold up. I'm always hawking other books. But this is a, um, uh, this is a, I, what are we calling it? It is a guide. It's a handbook to poetry um, called the, <laughs> the Magical Poetry Blimp Pilot's Guide. And uh, it's a collaborative effort. There are a couple people here who have written chapters, uh, Cecilia and Diana among them. and. Uh, what it is is a uh, poetry handbook for kids. And as a poet laureate of California, I was charged by Governor Schwarzenegger to, then Governor Schwarzenegger to, um, as a state project to reach communities of, of uh, people who don't routinely have poetry in their lives. And that, I thought, would include our public schools. Because kids are just, as Cecilia well, well knows too, I mean, the kids in, in all kinds of schools are cut off often from the... The first thing to go is the arts, right, when they start cutting back on budgets. So um, I uh, thought it would be great to put together um, a guide, an actual guide, not just to, to reading... Uh, poetry, or to, to kind of writing poetry off the top of one's head, but learning forms and, and memorizing poems and learning, you know, 
actually the joy of, of reciting poems. So we have, you know, Diana, Diana actually put this whole thing together. I have to say, I have to give credit where credit is due. She designed the whole thing and also wrote a chapter on haiku. Cecilia wrote about, um, oh, Pantum, thank you. Actually, I'm going to pass this around and there'll be a test. Uh, but the, and the illustrations were done by Rick, a guy, an artist named Rick Cortez. They're really terrific. Anyway, the whole idea was that we were going to distribute this free to the California public schools so that every school, every school kid would have a copy. Um, uh, it turned out to be prohibitively expensive to try to do that. This book is for sale on Amazon, but it costs, what does it cost? It's like 20, actually no, it's not that much, I think it's like 25. But we decided, would you just talk about the downloading, because I'm going to mess it up. We now have a, it, you can download it free, is what it amounts to. It's all online, and each chapter is downloadable for free, and there's also a comment section, so students have the ability to write their own poems and comment on the internet. It's, it's interactive, right? It's interactive. But I, I, know, I know I asked you this. I know. Does it look like? Do the illustrations look like this and stuff? It's such. I mean, the illustrations really are cool. I'm gonna. Diane's seen it. Or Diana's seen it many times. Corey, you've seen it, right? So I'm gonna start with Stewart, who probably has already seen I really don't want to write a pantoum right now. I want to write a bark, bark haiku. Um, another book, well actually Steve mentioned that uh, they're not really, this is not really my book, but it's a book I co-edited uh, with the wonderful poet Bob Holman. Some of you know Bob, who is just sort of an ambassador of poetry all over the world and, uh, and runs the um, Bowery Poetry Club in New York City, among many, many other things. He's also a, um, I don't know what you would call him exactly, he, he goes out and saves disappearing languages. He travels all over the world and he records, he goes and talks to griots in Africa and he talks to um, the last, you know, speakers of languages throughout the planet and, uh, and is a an historian and, and uh, memoirist of these, these languages. Anyway, what this book is that I co-edited with him, uh, Crossing State Lines, is an American Ranga. And um, some of you may know, as a matter of fact, in the Magical Poetry Blimp uh, Pilot's Guide, we have a Yes, a section on the Renga. Uh, it's a for, an ancient Japanese form. It actually is a conversation poem. Uh, in Japan, uh, people after dinner would sit around, drink a little sake, and they would write poetry. And the form that they used, it's really a game-like uh, form, was the Renga. And I won't go into too much detail about the uh, the actual uh, formal requirements of the Ranga, but it's it's uh, mainly syllabic, uh, so that some of the participants in this Ranga, this is 54 American poets in Ranga conversation. Some used the syllabic count, some didn't. Um, I thought it would be a good idea. A few others did, and then but each of us really had 10 lines um, to write. Uh, a response to the person just before, uh, except for Robert Pinsky, who began the Ranga, and um, and then no one followed Robert Haas, who ended the Ranga. It started on the East Coast with Pinsky and ended on the West Coast with Robert Haas. Anyway, long story short, 54 very different and diverse American poets took part in this project, and we're going to have another one that will include the many, many people that we did not manage to include in this one. Uh, but uh, uh, just to give you a little sample of the kind of 
Let me just read Robert Pinsky's beginning. Um, what when the Renga, when this Renga was written, it was around the time of Obama's election, so that there's a huge amount of you know delight in victory. Times have changed. Um, also, but also, you know, economic stress, distress, uh, foreclosures mentioned, um, you know, families struggling, the war is mentioned. Actually, one of the poets is a, an old friend of mine that I met years ago and I read my poems at West Point, and he's um, now back from Afghanistan, Lieutenant Colonel um, Ed uh, Ledford, and he wrote about being a soldier. His con contribution, maybe I'll read it, to the, uh, to the Rango was about being a soldier and at war, in a war he did not really feel. I have to say, from his, his contribution was worth fighting. So I'll read, uh, I'll start with Pinsky. Um, beginning of October, maples kindle in the east, linked to fire season in the west. By what? Four time zones, oceans of prairies, rocky precincts, air, turbulence, ice melt, ozone ranges. Air held his breath, says Lincoln in his poem. Lincoln wrote one poem. Stealthily, at night, he stole away to hear a madman singing. What live or lethal or greater and sane flows linking air to air or song to song? Now the poet who I followed uh, so, so Pinsky is followed by C.D. Wright, is followed by Rita Dove, is followed by Billy Collins, is followed by a poet named Suhir, Suhir Hamad, whose work I did not know. And she, you know, when is the person uh, who follows the previous poet is supposed to take a little bit from whatever that poet said, the preceding poet wrote about. So here's Suhir's and then I'll read my response to her or my following poem. Hers is, a field of foreclosed flowers, dreams of living rooms, glassware, chinaware, nowhere. The beautiful struggle here, pray a house is not a home. The middle of October, leaves carry the sun, families furnish rentals. The margins gather for warmth where the buffalo don't roam. So I took her line, pray a house is not a home. Pray a house is not a home, and while you're at it, pray that prayer is not a funhouse mirror slid between terror and God's face. Time to make something from nothing, garden, star chart, beehive, birdhouse, abacus, to add up what remains when what we thought was wealth is gone. And I think I will read, it's very, very dark. We actually, Robert Haas and, and Ed Ledford, who was back from Afghanistan, and I were on um, a morning edition uh, with Renee Montaigne, and she asked each of us to read our contribution, and this is his. He did not follow the, you'll be able to tell he didn't follow the Slavic count, this um, uh, soldier poet, but uh, his contribution is so dark that when he read it, there was just silence in the <laughs> on the air for like 12 seconds. His name is Lieutenant Colonel Edward Ledford. Uh, he 
was in strategic command in the U.S. Army, but I met him at West Point years ago when I, they used to have a poetry series. Do you not remember that? It was West Point. It was really, I actually wrote about it in the uh, New York Times uh, book review uh, when they used to have those essays in the back. Uh, they did a, something called Shakespeare in the Long Gray Line. It was about coming, being a poet and coming to West Point and reading to, to all the plebes and the officers. All right, so here's his much longer, non-syllabic uh, contribution, but I hope I'll read it correctly. Pathogen, actually he, he, sorry, I have to precede this by explaining it. He was in the Pentagon. He actually was in the Pentagon when it was hit by the plane since 9-11 anniversary is coming up again. Ed was inside the Pentagon. The Pentagon was hit by a plane, and he said that whole section that he was in, that wing of the Pentagon, there was only one thing left standing, and it was perfectly untouched. It was a pedestal or a lectern on which there was a dictionary open. I was dying to ask him what page it was open to, but I... I don't think he remembers. So that's referred to here. Pathogens injected Trojan horse style. Temple walls crumble before a small lexicon, altered and stable, unsullied, too briefly a miracle. Our neo-tragedy was their crazy carte blanche. You'd think they'd have read their Homer. But like slapping the moron beside the bully, we invade Babylon to applause which muted, ahem, throats cleared for political posterity. Soldiers are nothing more than pharmacon charged with the damned's duty, enlisted to oaths that finally only matter when we wish they didn't. The soldier philosopher turns the gun on himself to salvage some meaning, a smirk and crooked smile. Ha, <laughs> sure showed him, didn't we, dead eye. I always get the chills when I read that. Anyway, it's a uh, Jasper Johns on the cover, obviously the flag. Wonderful. I think it turned out really well. And this is Twin Cities, which is my own book of poems. Finally, gotten to this, um, and it's uh, uh, a collection that um, is about twins. Obviously, it's about the t actual twin cities. I was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Minneapolis, Minnesota is right across the river, so they are the twin cities. Um, but the, from the literal, and there are poems that are actually about that that location, geographic location. But then the idea of the twins and the doubling and the doubling of the self and, and ideas of huge ideas of life and death and so on, and. Um, and the two sort of, uh, I hope anyway, proceed from that. This is one of the, I had about four poems called Twin Cities, so this is the first title poem, Twin Cities, about the two cities, sort of. It's actually also about a, a woman, a, a young woman I knew in uh, high school, and I had to change her name when it was, this poem was in the New Yorker, and as you know, they have a very famous fact-checking uh, section, and they said, if she's still alive, she would be very upset, which is true. Uh, not because she did anything wrong, but because she did something I felt very right. But still, it reflected on her in some ways, so I had to change her name, which was Kathy McNulty. Anyway, <laughs> didn't want to mention it. Twin Cities. It was the river that made them two. The mills on one side, the cathedral on the other. 
We watched its swift currents. If we stared long enough, maybe it would stop cold and let us skate across to the other side. It never froze in place, though I once knew a kid, a wild, funny girl, who built a raft from branches, which promptly sank a few feet out from the elbow bend off Dayton's bluff, who made it seem easy to believe. We'd tried to break into Carver's cave, where bootleggers once hid their hot stash years after the Dakota drew their snakes and bears on the rock walls and canoed inside the caverns. We knew there were other openings in the cliffs mirroring those same rock faces on the other shore, and below them, the caves, the subterranean pathways underlying the talk and commerce, the big-shot churches, undermining the false maidenliness of the convent school from which my friend was eventually expelled for being too smart and standing up for her own smartness. Too late I salute you, Katie McNally. I think that the river returned then to two-sidedness, an overhung history of bottle flash and drift. I see you still laughing as the lashed sticks sank beneath you, laughing as you did that morning when the river lifted its spring shoulders, shrugging off the winter ice, that thin, brittle mirage, making you believe we were all in this together. I'd love to know if she's still around, actually. Kathy McNulty, Katie McNally. <laughs> well, you know, yes, I should, anyway, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. But I do still have many friends, actually, in Minnesota from my, even grade school, but high school days, and they've looked for her, actually, with no, uh, no result. I know, I love that. I love that idea that she's... Her alias is Katie McNally. So I actually blew her cover by just trying to be, you know, <laughs> circumspect. Would be typical. Um, this is a poem about L.A. Oh, then also then the uh, one of the t idea of twins is two coasts, living on two coasts, which I do. Mostly I live here, though. And I think of this as home, really. Though I love New York. This is called Condolence Note. Condolence Note, Los Angeles. You know, I always say this. I tell my students always particularly beginning students, you know, not writing students, not to say it really happened like this. It doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, if you write poetry or fiction, as many of you do, I know, it doesn't matter what really happened. What you are writing is transforming what happened. But after saying that, this really <laughs> actually did happen. This poem, I was sitting by a pool and I, I overheard a conversation between two kids, basically, uh, teenagers, who were trying to write a condolence note, and they, there apparently is an etiquette book that shows you or tells you how to write funeral notes and stuff. So anyway. Condolence note, Los Angeles. The sky is desert. The sky is desert blue, like the pool. Secluded. No swimmers here. No smog, unless you count this twisting brush fire in the hills. Two kids sit head to head, poolside, rehearsing a condolence note. Someone has died. Quotes, not an intimate, perhaps a family friend, prompts the manners guide they consult. You shouldn't say God never makes mistakes, she quotes, snapping her bikini top. Right he has. You could just say he's better off. Or heaven was always in his future, 
There's always a better way to say we're sorry that he's dead, but they're back inside their music now, pages of politeness fallen between them. Oh, do not say that the unsaid drifts over us like blown smoke, a single spark erupts in wildfire. Cup your hands, blow out this wish for insight, say forgive me for living when you are dead, say pardon my need to praise without you this bright morning sky. It belongs to no one, but I offer it to you, heaven in your future along with silent tunes from the playlist, the end time etiquette book dropped from the hand of the young sleeper. It's all we have left to share, the book of paid respects, the morning's hot blue iPod, sunlit words on a page, black border. Here's another Minnesota poem, actually. This poem seems to imply that I was part of a kind of racy set in high school or popular, none of which I was. I didn't date in high school. I didn't know any... Well, I did know people from the opposite sex, but I, I wasn't part of a group who raced cars along the river road, which was kind of what this is about. Along the Mississippi River, there was a, um, there was a very uh, beautiful road called the River Road. River Road. So you had your share of summer nights, cars breaking fast along the river road. The world was asleep, yet alive with threat. The high, grieving sound of acceleration Beauty grew too fast, like your body, ungainly, unfaithful. Along the river road there were nodding lilacs. Every intersection dangerous, your life dangerous, but you didn't know then how damage is made. Not just the flipped, glittering chassis spun apart into anecdote, but the night's notched up velocity ascending through a blue reservoir of scent. No, to remember the inevitable in terms of engaged, disengaged, gear to gear, one heightening judgment is, is to forget that back then the worst happened each time it happened. What was speaking loud over the figure on the dash, that was God, or not God. Something flashing past each roadside presence, statue after gesturing statue, trying to reverse your belief in imagination as the opposite of fate. Imagine a speed at which you could make what was happening not be true, a speed at which you could bargain for it, that you, on fire, from this minute forward, could be somebody else. And speaking of being somebody else, I uh, uh, once went trout fishing in the Himalayas, and uh, I am not a fisher person, and I'm not a... Uh, uh, Himalayan person. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I might be a Himalayan person, but only in my, my in my dreams, you know, kind of. But anyway, I ended up there. I was actually writing. This is so long ago and so silly, but I was writing a piece for. It wasn't silly. I was writing a piece for Ms. Magazine about a, a doctor in in uh, Kashmir. And also I was traveling with a then boyfriend. Anyway, we ended up in Kashmir. We ended up in the Himalayas, and we ended up going trout fishing up in the high white water up in the Himalayas and I didn't know what I was doing but I also had to dress like a boy because it's a Muslim country as you probably know and the, the Shikari who were the Sherpas, you know the guides addressed me as boy because they couldn't think that I was a woman. I, women didn't do these kinds of things. So I, I enjoyed a brief period of time as the other, other sex and this poem is about that.
And I actually remembered, speaking of fact-checking, I actually remembered the word that they said in Kashmiri for big fish, Budagard, it was, and I, and I was right. I remembered it all these years. And this is like a hundred years ago I was in Kashmir. It was safe to go there then. They called me boy in Kashmiri because they had no other word for what I appeared to them to be. Taller by a half foot, gawky in my rolled jeans and cap, they chose to look away from my small breasts and voice lilt and rename me in the lexicon of sex. The shikari, mysterious, wizened in loose turbans, were our guides, up the mountain and through the wall of white water. They linked arms with us and waded us through to the high, still pools above where we cast for trout. They stepped in and out of Allah as we climbed, in sun and shade, singing his name. We were miles above Srinagar, in 200 miles from China, and finned bodies, and the finned bodies were swift under the surface. The shikari pointed, Budagard, big fish. Then they murmured their one word for me, and it was not sister or daughter. I was naked face, 27, a rebel, I thought. Therefore they made me their oversight. Had they not looked away from me as they spoke? Had it been otherwise, they would have heard it above the peaks, the clear unwavering call, a command to rip my cap away, to pick up stones, to separate my face from my face, stripping the veil from a hook of air, holding it over my breath till I gasped like a fish, till I was a pair of eyes on a plate. That body the world wishes both to savor and destroy. And uh, I know there's Jane Eyre fans out here because there are Jane Ann fairs, fans everywhere. <laughs> I continue to read and reread uh, Jane Eyre. Um, and this is another, yet another take on it. This is called heroin, not like the drug, like the protagonist. <laughs> then Jane says, there's an invisible thread between our hearts that can never be broken. And Rochester goes on acting tormented, doomed soon to renegotiate his own contract with the visible. So the happy ending relies, as always, on varieties of comeuppance. Jane's class avenged, Rochester humbled and sightless, the mad colonial wife setting fire to the rafters, the little kid coquette traipsing off into oblivion, or reader amnesia leaving a faint scent of wisteria on the page, unlike Jane, who leaves no recognizable scent. She wears self-effacement like the startling whiff of a nun's habit, laundered dreams. Targetless, her neutered wild look, even meeting Rochester's black piratical gaze, refusing her own image in the glass, her little set chin, her eyes down, dowryless style that hurt implicit power except for the matter of the thread, the breath-colored filament linking two hearts with pretty much nothing in common. The thread pulses like a Bronte umbilical, which it is. We are reminded once again that its length is infinite, its connection eternal, though not 
finally for the two sexes, rather woman to woman, beyond class or aptitude, like the clean path of the flare shot and ascending across latitudes against satellite winds, visible limits against judgment itself into our global posited pop rocket of love me, love me, O oh blind and careless master. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh blind and careless master. Oh love me, love me, and careless master, right. And then on the back, never mind. The thread broke. <laughs> One of the greatest moments. Not this one. As long as you're laughing, I'll read you a... Um, you know, some people are horrified by, by this poem, but I think it's funny. And if you've ever... Well, actually, if you've ever gotten hate email, you know, you... You might laugh, but you're pretty horrified at the same time. Um, I Hi, Scott. Thank you for coming. Is Caitlin? Hi, Caitlin. Hi. God, this is great. Thanks for coming to us. Um... What I was going to say is, I don't know how many readings of mine you've been to this year, but it's like, uh, this must be in the double digits. Um, uh, I did get some email that was hate, pretty vicious hate mail. So, and, 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 and I decided to, you know, I don't quote from it, I just sort of made up my own version of this crazy, crazy rhetoric that I was getting in email for a while. So this, I had fun with it. But there's a part of it that's kind of scary, too. Hate mail. You are a whore. You are an old whore. Everyone hates you. God hates you. He pretty much has had it with all women. <laughs> but let me tell you, especially you. Wow. You like to think that you can think faster than the rest of us? Ha. We drive the car in which you are a crash dummy. So why do you defy our executive committee, which will never cede its floor to you? If a pig flew out of a tree and rose to become a blimp, you would write a poem about it, <laughs> ignoring the greater good. I'm sorry to say, the hard facts of gravity. You deserve to be flattened by the greater good. Pigs don't fly, yet your arrogance is that of a blimp that has long forgotten its place on this earth. I find this so timely in terms of our blimp guide. Anyway, it must have been on my mind. That has long forgotten its place on this earth. Big arrogance unmoored from its launch pad, floating free, up with the mangy Canadian honkers, up with the spy satellites in the ruined ozone layer, which is, by the way, caused by your breath. <laughs> Because you were born to ruin everything, hacking into the inspiration of the normal human egg ego. You are not Queen Tut, honey. You are not even a peasant barmaid. You are an aristocrat of trash, landmine of exploding rhinestones, crown of thorns, cabal of screech bats. I am telling you this as an old friend <laughs> who is offering advice for your own good. Change now or we will have to take measures, if you know what I mean, which you do. And now let's hear one of your fucked up poems. Let's hear you refute this truth any way you can. Oh my God. 
you know, I, these, I, I, those were not actual quotes, but I really did have fun with it. It's really, actually, it's very um, cathartic to write something like that, to write a hate mail to yourself. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm glad Cecilia should. It really, it actually was lots of fun. Except I keep thinking about the take measure. We will have to take measures. Anyway. Um, I don't know what the time is like. I, I, I just thought maybe I'd read a couple more. Actually, um, uh, let's see. There's a, um, I wrote a poem that, um, uh, is actually in five parts, <laughs> several pages long. I'm not, I'm just kidding. Uh, this one is called Stand Up Delusions. I tried to imagine what it would be like to write a poem in the voice of a, or the style of a stand-up comic. Um, but uh, I won't read the whole thing to you. I'll just read maybe the last couple parts. Or just selected parts. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's it's too long. But anyway, this is the third. I'll read the third through the fifth section. Oh, late style. I'm sorry, because some people will know who this poet is that I had this affair with, but I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> oh, late style of fire, I was your lover. In that apricot-tinted chemise in my Gramercy Park flat, bright winter city. In fact, it was a camisole. Peach silk, and I did not banish you. We were as you wrote in love, inconveniently. Even as your father's death, that fiery for forbidden given. Saw America in that collision of infidelity and longed for innocence. Those bright green eyes that widened at the airport, those were my eyes. We stood at the gates to your father's silent lit city, those drifting spring nights in Iowa. Another city saying goodbye in my doorway. I kissed the door frame, desiring you to go. Reading Pavese, later, death will come and we'll have your eyes green and widening. So you were banished after all and the gates opened, but on a city so ridiculously tragic, you hang there still, laughing, hilarious, hands in your pockets, watching the rafters, beams, the door frames blaze upward. Spring, widening spell of ash, too late now, Linnet, to show up at my address. And next section. GG, that's Graham Greene wrote, uh, hatred is a failure of imagination. Yet to be hated by a true poet is to be perfectly imagined. For example, Mandelstam's fatal stand-up image, which was Stalin's cockroach mustache. He wrote, we live without feeling the country beneath our feet. We moonwalk above our graves, we poets, pals of irrelevancy. Oh, we are least imagined as real. So inventive, invective won't get you disappeared. You are. Or as that lyric hero, Deep Sixed, the pure products of once grandeur, once public school eloquence, once literate America care not about words anymore. Hatred is downloaded daily right from those doing our imagining for us. And this uh, is the final section that I'll read of oh, the stand-up section. Funny thing happened on my way to the mikvah. 
sorry, in Salem, lost my chador, my chastity belt, my bad. Please forgive the crash dummy, homie. No one thinks women are funny, but we have a driver's timing, even in the death seat. Take my wife, a pole dancer in Krakow. She kills. Late night, an actress playing Virginia Woolf with a rubber nose to raves. Honk, honk, all wrong. Our Virginia was a drop-dead groucho wit, even as she filled her pockets with heavy stones and headed for it. River of hello, I must be going, where death doubles back on itself. Take my husband, how we met in Italy in the late romantic style. The night before I first saw his mesmer face, I caught the shooting star, green and widening, arc of fire across the Tuscan sky. Oh, look, the gates keep opening on it, that lit up, tear-filled, joke-black city of knock-knock, who's not, who's not, what then? Then Posthumus, the poet, writes the world back into being. Thank you. I, I'm supposed to say something about a, a Q&A, but I'm, I'm sure there are no questions. But if someone wants to, <laughs> if someone would like to, uh, yeah, I hope not. Yes, Corey, Corey. Um, what's, uh, can you explain the cover of the book, your book, the Twin Cities? Oh, Twin Cities. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know if I can explain it, but um, this is a, a wonderful artist, and I'm going to check her name again. It's actually called Night Fishing by Amy Bennett. She's a... Um, uh, I saw this, um, you know what, it's a long story basically, but I saw an ice fishing landscape that I really loved. I don't know why the idea of the cracked ice and the skaters around it seemed really right. Uh, the, the original uh, photograph I saw is by a woman named Susan Bernstein, and it has uh, it looked like Twin Cities, like on either side of the lake, the, the icy lake, the frozen lake, um, but that um, proved too dark. It was a black and white photo. It proved too dark for the cover, so Penguin, my um, uh, publisher, found this, this uh, painting, and originally they wanted to try, these are ice fishing houses here along the lake. Originally they, they had put in a skyline. The artist said Penguin had put a skyline of a city in so it make it look like Twin Cities and the artist said, oh no you don't. <laughs> so they took it out and actually I think it looks better without a fake skyline. And I, I don't know how to explain it really or you know it just seems right for these poems. There are poems about you know, well obviously the first poem I read is about the river not freezing and um, there's another poem about skating. So in a way, there's, it's thematic. <laughs> any other any other questions about anything? Oranga, the magic poetry blimp, pilot's guide. Oh, that's thank you for asking about that because actually that's very telling. We were talking about uh, Dana Joya earlier. Um, he advised me. He was used to be you know General Foods. He was their trade lawyer, trademark lawyer, or something like that. There's a bus that you may know. Yes, <clears throat> the Magic School Bus. It's called uh, Scholastic Publishers. Has actually not only you know, it has that as one of their titles, but they've made it into a trademark, which means that nobody uh, can use anything, I guess, even close to it. I mean, we had this, Diane and I know that we went through this whole thing where we we thought if we changed the color of our, we originally we were the magic poetry bus, and we thought if we changed the color of the bus image or something like that, or changed, you know, one of the words, it would work, but but there were ominous rumblings that we heard sort of second and third hand. You're shaking, like you know, right? So, 
It's what? It's a really popular. My sister grew up with it. Oh, my, my daughter did too. I used to read that book to her. I loved it. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think it was in the back of my mind. But anyway, and we were never threatened by Scholastic or anything, but we decided to be really safe. And so I like blimps better anyway than buses, so we just went to the magical uh, poetry blimp, and I'm glad we did. If you've seen the, I don't know where it is, the, the guide that's going around, the blimp really does look pretty good. Don't lose it. I need it back. <laughs> um, so th there's no uh, way to get them other than to buy them from Amazon? You can download free. You can download free. You can download the chapters from the website. Did you not get a copy of it? I'm going to give you the copy if you didn't get one, because you, as one of the uh, contributors, you should have gotten. Remember? Yeah, but anyway, it's a little. sent an earlier iteration of it. Yeah, I think I got a magic poetry bus. Right, and you didn't get the blimp. Do you, who, do you know where the blimp is right now? Do you have it? Would you mind? I'm going to give it to, to Celia. <laughs> I think I have an extra one besides this. So. Thank you. Great, thank you. Anybody else question? I have a question about the Wrangler book. Did you say yeah. that there's going to be another one? Yeah, I, you know, um, the Ferris and Giroux published this one, and um, uh, uh, John Glossy, who's a very famous editor there, and himself a poet and translator, loved this so much that it, a lot of people are trying to persuade him that they should do Daughter of Ranga. But if it's not for our stress and Drew, it might be somebody else because there's a lot of interest in, in you know, doing. And we, and we did ask other poets. There were poets we couldn't get to. There were poets we taught, sent emails to and they never answered and poets we forgot. So we'd like to do another one, definitely. And we will. It's just when, exactly. But, um, well, that's a whole other conversation. There's a lot of cities that want to do their own. I love that Moose has got, he's, he's got his chin on a bookshelf, and he's reading. He's reading about the Caribbean, as well he should. Any other questions? Again, thank you all for coming. Very much. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.